You are listening to A Cup of Tea with the DBE, brought to you by the Daughters of the British Empire. British Empire is a 501c3 non-profit American Society of Women of British or Commonwealth birth or ancestry, sharing and promoting our heritage while supporting local charities and our senior living facilities across the U.S. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 26 of A Cup of Tea with the DBE. And what a special weekend it has been as we have celebrated the Queen's 70th Jubilee far and wide. In keeping with the theme, I am joined by Alana Eddy from the Sir James M. Barry chapter in Toledo, Ohio to discuss the Queen's iconic fashion through the years. So pour yourself a cup of tea or maybe a glass of champagne and get comfortable. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was born on the 21st of April, 1926, in Mayfair, London, to Albert, the future king, and his wife, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. Her grandfather, George V, was king, and as a child, she affectionately called him Grandpa England. Four years later, in 1930, Princess Margaret was born. So, one of the earliest fashion moments, I guess, for Queen Elizabeth would be back when she was Princess Elizabeth, um, when she and her sister Margaret, even though they were several years apart, pretty much were dressed like twins all through their childhood and, you know, into like their early teen years, I believe. And every year from their first birthday until they were 18, their father, the king, gave them a necklace. And each year, they would add a pearl to it until when they were 18 and they were, you know, women and coming of age, they had a full pearl necklace to wear. And the queen has always been very fond of pearls. You'll see lots of photos. She's often wearing a pearl necklace. With the onset of World War II in 1939, just three years after Albert became King George VI, it was suggested that the princesses be evacuated to Canada. This was strongly opposed by their mother, who said, the children won't go without me, I won't leave without the king, and the king will never leave. In 1944, when she turned 18, Elizabeth insisted upon joining the Auxiliary Transport Service, starting as a second subaltern. She trained as a mechanic, earning a rank equivalent to captain, and is today the last surviving head of state to have served in World War II. When she was 18, um, during the war 1945, she insisted on joining the Auxiliary Territorial Service, and her father did not grant her special ranks. So she was like a normal person working with them. And the uniform they wore, um, I believe, khaki, which would probably be cotton, I think. And it was a khaki skirt, very plain, straight line skirt, the almost men's style military jacket with the belt, with a coordinating blouse and tie and a hat. And this was considered not an appealing outfit. Like a lot of the women's um, army reserves and WRNS and the WAAF tried to make their uniforms appealing to women. So kind of like, if we make our uniforms attractive, the women will want to help, <laughs> which yeah, I could see is kind of a little insulting. <laughs> um, in the U.S., I don't know about in Britain, but in the U.S., some of the branches of the women's 
Army Reserves, um, you know, women's military branches actually had designers design the, the uniforms to make them attractive. So not super fashionable to talk about, but kind of cool. I wasn't able to find a ton of in-depth information about the ATS uniform. I only saw pictures of her in the coverall suit when she was actually working on vehicles, which yes. is so cool to see her in such a position. Yeah, the actual, uh, her actual mechanic outfit. And then she had like the more dress style uniform with the skirt and the matching jacket. It was also in 1939 that Elizabeth started exchanging letters with Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark, having met him on three occasions. But it wasn't until 1947, when Elizabeth was 21, that they announced their engagement. Many believed that he, as a foreign prince without a home or financial standing, was not good enough for her. And he had sisters married to Germans with Nazi ties. However, prior to the marriage, he renounced his Greek and Danish titles, converted from the Greek Orthodox Church to the Anglican Church, and took the surname of his mother's British family, becoming Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten. Shortly before the wedding, he was given the title of His Royal Highness, Duke of Edinburgh. The two were married at Westminster Abbey on the 20th of November, 1947, only four months after the announcement of their engagement. That dress, I think, is you know, a very important moment in the Queen's fashion timeline. It was designed by Norman Hartnell, who became the dressmaker to her mother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, in 1940, after doing some designs for them in the late 40s, um, designed tons of stuff for her and the two princesses when they were young. And in 1957, he was awarded a royal warrant by Queen Elizabeth II to be her one of her official dressmakers, along with um, another man we'll probably talk about a little bit here, Hardy Amys. But Norman Hartnell, he was the Givenchy to her Hepburn. Uh, and he designed for her and was one of her dressmakers until he died in 1979. So he designed her wedding dress and the design for it was approved only three months before the day. And, you know, this was, you know, a hugely important gown to make on such a short timeline. It was embroidered by hand, I believe. I don't think they had embroidery machines yet and had over 10,000 pearls on it. And it's pretty in fashion, but not outrageously trendy. You've got the kind of stronger shoulder lines, but not huge shoulder pads that you see in the 40s. Long sleeves, the princess lines, and all embroidered with stars, which are a dual-edged sword of being inspired by a Botticelli painting and the stars representing the rebirth of the nation after the hardships of World War II. There she's got her pearls. The train was 13 feet long. So not... <laughs> I think Diana's was like over 20 or 30 feet long. So very conservative <laughs> uh, 13 foot train, especially with the fabric rations, which a lot of women that were getting married decided to send their ration coupons to the Queen so she could buy the fabric for her cow. I think that says a lot about England in general, really. Yeah, and how people felt about her. She was their princess. They loved her, and they wanted her to have her special dress for her wedding. But it is a very lovely gown and a perfect example of the Queen's ability to stay both current but still timeless, that she never looks really dated. Yeah. So I don't think she's got a lot of uh, fashion victim moments in her past. <laughs> it was never really expected that Elizabeth would ever become queen, 
During her grandfather's reign, she was third in line for the throne. It was believed that Edward would marry and have children of his own, so when George V died in 1936 and Edward became king, she was second in line until he had his own heir. Of course, Edward soon abdicated, and Elizabeth's father, Albert, became George VI, solidifying Elizabeth's eventual succession. Following World War II, the king's health was strained, and Elizabeth took on more royal duties as early as 1949. His last public appearance was at London Airport on February 6, 1952, when he saw Elizabeth and Philip depart for a trip to Australia with a stop in Kenya. He died in the night six days later. The princess flew back from Kenya as Queen Elizabeth II. Her coronation took place the following year, on June 3, 1952. Possibly the biggest fashion moment for her would be her coronation in 1953, a year after her father's death and becoming, at last, Queen Elizabeth II. This dress was also designed by Norman Hartnell. He had a little bit longer to work on this dress, I believe eight or nine months to work on it instead of the kind of paltry three months of the wedding gown. And it was one of eight designs he made for her. Um, and I believe it was the seventh one, which was approved by her. And it was originally, the design was just the four emblems of the United Kingdom, the English Rose, Scottish Thistle, the Welsh League, and the Irish Shamrock, done in silver embroidery. But she requested that it be done in colored embroidery and also include emblems of the other Commonwealth nations, such as the Canadian maple leaf, the fern of New Zealand, and the lotus of India. And it, again, very much typifies both contemporary but traditional. It's got the full skirt and the tight-fitting bodice that are very 50s. The neckline, relatively wide, but nothing extreme. It's not extremely low. It's not too daring. And it actually, the shape and style of it reminds me a little bit of the gowns that would have been worn by Queen Victoria over 100 years earlier when she first became queen. So it's definitely got that traditional feeling to it. Throughout her time on the throne, the Queen has made hundreds of state visits and Commonwealth tours, making her the most widely traveled head of state. She is also the first reigning monarch of both New Zealand and Australia to visit those nations. As I mentioned, Hardy Amy's was another one of her designers. I want to address that I really like that he designed for the Queen was the gown she wore to the 1959 visit to Nova Scotia. It's really pretty. Descriptions I've read of it say it's gray, but I see it as almost maybe kind of a greenish blue. But it's net embroidered with the Nova Scotia Mayflower in pink. And then down the back, it's got these three bands of ribbon that come into bows down the back. And I just think it's such a pretty dress. Very pretty. Full skirt. Absolutely love that one. Uh, one of the dresses uh, you added here was a poppy dress that she wore when visiting with the Reagans in California. And that one was also designed by Hardy Amy's and not Norman Hartnell, because unfortunately Norman Hartnell had passed on by that point. You can tell that it kind of that it's an 80s dress, but it's not like insane geometric prints and gigantic shoulder pads and ruffles and, and shiny materials. But it's very traditional. It's got, you know, a soft tulle or net skirt, you know, the very pretty poppy embroidery that looks like it's probably hand beaded with little glass beads. Yeah, one of the things and, she said is that she's very good at um, oh yeah, seeing the beat with her clothes, like in that case with poppy yeah. California State Flower. Yes, 
And also um, the blue and yellow hat she wore shortly after the fit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that... Tell us how she really feels. <laughs> yeah, definitely plays tribute to the European Union. So, yeah, she's very great at, you know, knowing how to dress respectfully in a way that shows that she respects, you know, where she's visiting or who she's visiting with, um, which is, I think, a very important thing for a woman in her position because, you know, she is the head of state. She has to be impeccable at all times. So in the 1960s, jogging back a little bit, somewhere where we start to see kind of her traditionalism versus the modernism is when the Kennedys visited Buckingham Palace in 1961. And there's this um, really interesting photo to see the two types Mm -hmm. of styles. You've got the queen there in this lovely evening gown, full skirt, tight bust, very 50s style in a way, but still fashionable in the early 60s. It's all this gathered blue tool. And then you've got Jackie in her slim cut, almost Audrey Hepburn-esque, dress has got you know the boat neck the very up and down shape so you see that the queen's a little bit more traditional where jackie was more on the cutting edge of fashion mm-hmm. and this is also around the same time that you see that she picked out a haircut and has not deviated yeah. from it since it's very much that brushed back you know a little bit of puff and then the soft kind of rolled curls down the side in the back and she has very much had that haircut ever since and you got to hand it to her for the consistency she found what worked for her and she's not changing it not for anyone another outfit of hers that i really liked in 1967 is a pink and green floral hardy amy's coat with a matching hat that she wore in balta and you can see on the gown she's got a on the jacket she's got a brooch which she's very fond of brooches she's almost always wearing them and as you said when visited by Trump that she wore a brooch that had been gifted to her by the Obamas several years earlier. Um, and that certainly makes a statement. It does. <laughs> I think the Hardy Amy, because I like pink and green together, but it's really where you can see that kind of very simple cut, but in the bright colors that are very her and kind of the beginnings of her uniform, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The Queen has a vast collection of brooches that have been inherited or gifted to her over the years. A few notable ones include the Centenary Rose Brooch, which she designed herself as a 100th birthday present for her mother, consisting of 100 diamonds framing a hand-painted Grand Flora Rose. Queen Victoria's Sapphire and Diamond Wedding Brooch, also known as the Prince Albert Brooch, which Albert gifted to Victoria the night before their wedding. The flower basket brooch, given to Elizabeth by her parents to celebrate the birth of her first child, Prince Charles. She wore it for her first official portrait with the young prince, and more recently to the christening of Charles's firstborn, Prince George. And finally, the scarab brooch, one of her favorites, given to her by Prince Philip in 1966. And the uniform is, of course, so recognizable. The formal daywear consisting of a light day dress with bright matching wool blend coat dress, many of which come from Stuart Parvin as well as a matching hat, often from Rachel Trevor Morgan. One of the most notable things that we see about the Queen even today at almost 100 years old, I forget how old she is exactly, is the fact that she is almost always in bright, bold colors, matching coat, skirt, dress, hat. And so she always stands out. So, you know, she's in a crowd. You can say, there's the Queen, the lady in the bright yellow hat. (laughs) If something goes wrong, if there's a danger, if there's a threat to the queen's safety, you know, she's immediately visible. Her guards can find her and get her out of there into safety. Makes her stand out and very recognizable. Mm -hmm. 
So you see a lot of that through the 80s and 90s. One of my favorite photos I found of her during my research was at the um, 1988 Windsor Horse Show where she's in full riding gear with jodhpurs yes. and a blazer and a bandana on her head. And I just love it because it's such um, a, so neat to see such an earthy representation mm -hmm. of the queen. You know, see that she's, you know, she's down to earth. She's a person like us, even if, you know, she's a queen and she gets to wear the fancy crown all the time. But I love that. And then at the 1991 horse show, I found another picture of her in a cardigan and a tartan wool skirt, which is, again, like kind of her casual uniform, yeah. her dress down when I she doesn't have to be queen. Because yeah. that's like, that's what my grandma wears today. My grandma, yeah. she wears like her skirts are the same length as the queen and she yeah. has her blouse and her cardigan. If it's windy, she'll put a headscarf on. My grandmother used to wear the silk scarves on her head, <laughs> too. So those are, I just really think that's cool to see the casual side of the queen. It makes mm -hmm. her so much more relatable. And then what we have is a really interesting outfit that she wore to the 1999 out. Royal Variety performance. And this is like the wildest I've ever seen her. It was a gold silk skirt with the sequin top of all these colors, like pink and purple and blue and yellow diamonds all in rhinestones and it's just absolutely wild and fantastic and it's so different than her typical conservative shapes of the yeah. top I think is the the part that makes it really uncharacteristic of her yeah it's not just yeah. one bright bold color it's yeah and it's so yeah. 90s in a yeah. way yeah she's used to wearing those bright colors and that day she said you know what I'm gonna wear them all <laughs> all of them yeah <laughs> what a look yeah Another look of hers I really liked was uh, 2006 opening of Parliament with a white, she's got a white beaded full length gown with a white fur stole and the white gloves. And I just think she looks very glamorous. It's very movie star. A dress about the pandemic. She wore green with turquoise brooch, a nod to the National Health Service workers, which I definitely can believe that her, believe that from her, she knows how to play tribute with an outfit. Absolutely. On the 9th of April, 2021, Queen Elizabeth sat at her husband's bedside as he passed away. She became the first monarch to rule as a widow or widower since Queen Victoria. Because of COVID-19 restrictions, the funeral service was limited to only 30 guests at six feet apart. The Queen sat alone. When her husband Philip died, yeah, it was you know, very different to see her in all black when we're so used to her in lime green and canary yellow and bright blue and stuff, all these bright, happy colors. And then to see her, you know, so sombered. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, the royals have for all, several decades always been required to have a full black outfit when they travel in case somebody dies while they're out of their country. It's very much to protect their image from mm -hmm. the vultures of human opinion. And to just always look appropriate. That's such a British thing. Yeah. You always have yeah. to be appropriate and tasteful. The rule that royals must always pack a black outfit when traveling was established by Elizabeth herself upon the death of her father as she returned for Kenya with nothing appropriate to wear remaining on the airplane until someone delivered more suitable clothes so she could change before disembarking. Some fun facts now that we've come up to the present um, that I've got here are the fact that her personal dresser, Angela Kelly, she wears the same shoe size as her majesty, so she breaks in all her shoes for her. Her shoes are often, as far as I've found, custom made by a 
a traditional English brand, Anello and David. Uh, they used to have another shoemaker in the royal family before that in like the 40s but after they closed they moved on to Anello and David and they make all her shoes custom and then they go to Mrs. Kelly who breaks them in for her. Didn't she have someone hunt down her custom pattern from the shoemaker that closed? So that Yeah I, I believe so time? yeah imagine having all your shoes custom made and broken in for you. <laughs> Must no be nice. <laughs> Her favorite bags are by Lawner. She's got hundreds, over 200 of them. One of her favorite styles is the Traviata and the Turandot, which um, I think is interesting that those are both named after operas. Mm-hmm. I thought that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she's got all her bags custom made. And um, I definitely love the fact that she can use how she's holding her bag to be like, I'm ready to go. I don't want to talk to this person anymore. And I wish I had somebody I could signal to with my handbag that please save me from this conversation. I can't take it anymore. Can you imagine just having a conversation with the queen and you see her put her bag on her other arm and you're like, she's bored. Oh no, I've offended her. (laughs) (laughs) But I could use that symbol because I've been part of many a conversation I don't want to be part of. A lot of her coats have weights sewn into the hems, which is actually pretty common to do. I know other people in the royal family do it, you know, so, you, you know, nobody can get any upskirt shots or anything. And on some fabric, it just helps that weight keeps it from like fluttering around and not laying right. It just gives it that perfectly crisp, tailored, not a hair out of play look that she needs. Now, uh, from my personal opinion, uh, the Queen's had, you know, many great, you know, fashion moments, accessories, but my personal favorite of all her accessories is definitely the Corkies. Mm-hmm. Always have and always will be. As previously stated, it's clear that pearls and brooches are some of the Queen's favorite accessories, and she can frequently be seen wearing white gloves, particularly when she is to be shaking hands with many people. She also favors Fulton birdcage-style umbrellas, as did the Queen Mother, and for headscarves, she prefers Hermes. As for the corgis, they go where the Queen goes, between palaces, on plains, and in limos. They each have their own stockings hung at Sandringham, which the Queen fills personally each year, and they sleep in her private apartment every night. She has owned at least one corgi from 1933 to 2018, but was gifted a puppy by her family last summer. Yes, she has had a long history of dressing and fashion. She knows exactly how to stay in tune with the times, but not ever be a fashion victim or a slave to trends, which has always kept her timeless. And you can look back over some of her outfits from quite a ways back, and they almost look the same as what she wears now, which just proves how constant she is. She's kind of the rock of of the nation, I think. February 6th of this year officially marked the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, and in her Accession Day speech, she renewed her commitment to a lifetime of public service that she first made 70 years prior. I hope you enjoyed your Jubilee celebrations, whatever they were. Don't forget you can drop us a line and tell us about them at podcast at dbenational.org or you can find us on social media by searching for Daughters of the British Empire. So until next time, not ourselves, but the cause.